Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the international affairs, foreign policy, global development communities, and anyone interested in a deeper understanding of the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. On June 18th, Antonio Guterres was reappointed United Nations Secretary General for a second and final five-year term. Prior to serving as Secretary General since 2017, Guterres was the UN High Commissioner for Refugees and also a long-serving Prime Minister of Portugal. Guterres was renominated by the Security Council and formally elected by the General Assembly without facing any significant challengers. Given the reappointment of Guterres, I thought this would be a good time to both look back at the highlights and lowlights of his first term and sketch out some of the key challenges and opportunities that will present themselves over the next five years. And on the line with me to discuss all this and more is Richard Gowan, the UN Director of the International Crisis Group and a frequent guest of this podcast. We kick off with a discussion of some of Guterres' successes and failures since 2017 before having a forward-looking conversation about what lies ahead for the Secretary General as he begins his second and final term. UN watchers and foreign policy generalists and other interested parties will appreciate this episode, I am sure. I always appreciate speaking with Richard, and I will certainly have him back for our annual UN General Assembly coverage this coming September. And before we begin, I do want to thank everyone who has bought and reviewed the debut book from Global Dispatches, titled For the Love of Hong Kong, a memoir from my city under siege by Hana Mehan Davis. Hana Mehan Davis is a young Hong Konger who was born into a pro-democracy activist family, and she tells the story of Hong Kong's democratic decline through her own really beautifully written personal narrative. I was so proud to serve as the publisher of the book, and I recommend all who are listening to this now to click the link in the show notes or visit globaldispatchespodcast.com where you can find a link to buy the book. Thank you. All right, now here is my conversation with Richard Gowan of the International Crisis Group. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Before we go into the agenda ahead of Guterres' second term, maybe we could briefly go back and discuss what you think are some of the highlights and lowlights of his first term. And let's start with the successes. What would you say were some of the key achievements of Guterres in his first term as Secretary General? 
I think his one overarching success was simply to minimize the damage of the Trump administration to the United Nations. That's what I was going to say. I I think that's what every diplomat and UN official would say. You know, Guterres was just very unlucky. He came into office about three weeks before Trump entered the White House, and he had to spend a lot of his time, especially in 2017 and 2018, just building a working relationship with a very, very anti-UN administration. Um, But he did it. Uh, He was lucky that Trump's first ambassador to the UN, Nikki Haley, was actually you know, quite keen to make things work out too. And between them, I think they did manage to prevent Trump going all the way in some of his threats to undermine the organization. Climate change or later the World Health Organization, Trump did a lot of damage. Yeah, I mean, you did, of course, see Trump blaming the World Health Organization for his own incompetence in dealing with COVID. Um, but, you know, that never translated into this overarching animus towards the UN as a whole. Like, you never saw Trump calling for the United States to withdraw from the United Nations. And that itself, frankly, is is a victory. And I also think perhaps speaks to what makes Guterres unique in the history of secretary generals is that he is a seasoned politician, right? He was the former prime minister of Portugal. And I think those political skills were certainly demonstrated in how he managed the U.S. relationship during uh, his first term. That's true. And, you know, the gossip is that actually he even got on quite well one to one with Trump. Um, which is surprising because Guterres comes from you know, a European socialist political tradition. Um, he was actually head of the Socialist International for a time. And yet he used his experience, he used his instincts as a leader to to build a decent enough relationship with a president from a totally different political family. Mm. Now, I, I do think that by the end of Trump's term, you know, as he started to attack the WHO, as the US became more and more paranoid about China's influence in the UN, things were beginning to fragment. And if we were now half a year into Trump's second term, I think we might be in a bit of a nightmare. But we're not. And I agree. Yeah. yeah Guterres sort of, you know, he held the line and now he's got a team down in Washington he can, he can do business with on things like climate change in a way that was never possible uh, prior to this year. So what would you say were some key failures from the Secretary General then in his first uh, five, to five years in office? Look, I think he was working under extreme constraints, and it's very hard to judge a politician working in such a difficult in- environment Um, I mean, I think that the community that has been most critical of Guterres is the human rights community. Um, And if you were talking to some of my colleagues from Human Rights Watch, for example, uh, they have been very publicly critical of Guterres, saying that he hasn't spoken up enough about China. He didn't speak up about the Trump administration's own 
infringements of human rights. And I think that's been a that's been a real headache for him and his team uh, throughout the last four years or so. Uh, sitting as I do in an organization that focuses on conflict resolution, I would have to say that his impact in in that field has also been quite limited. Uh, perhaps because he's very concerned about geopolitical tensions, Guterres has not really invested in the sort of high-level conflict management diplomacy that someone like Kofi Annan or, you know, legendarily Dag Hammarskjöld did. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he, he's tried a bit. He, he tried it in Libya. He, he tried in Cyprus. But, you know, even those efforts didn't deliver very much. And overall, he's been a very cautious leader when it comes to dealing with crises um, as, as well as with human rights issues. And that, of course, speaks to what you referenced earlier, the constraints in which he's operating, in which you have this moment of sharply increased tensions between members of the Security Council, principally, you know, the United States and and Western powers on the one hand, Russia on the other, and, and China as well. There is this kind of unique political moment in which he is trying to to navigate, and the Security Council is hopelessly splintered on most major issues on peace and security. Yes, and I think that in private, Guterres is is very critical um, of the Security Council. Even in public, he has sort of emphasized the dangers inherent in the new period of big power competition that we're coming into. And overall, even with the Biden administration, I don't think Guterres can be quite as big a player in international conflicts as someone like Kofi Annan was, because he's got to navigate between Beijing and Washington and Moscow. So I think he does now, coming into his second term, have a lot of space uh, to be more of a leader on climate. We know that's an issue that he's he's seized of. Um, I think probably a leader on challenges like vaccinations for COVID in, in the global south. But when it comes to a Syria or where it comes to uh, a Ukraine, his options are still, you know, uh, very narrow. So let's look forward then uh, and discuss what the second term holds for uh, Secretary General Guterres. Uh, What are some key challenges in the coming months and years that you see will sort of land on his plate that will he'll be forced to deal with that history will judge how he dealt with them? I think in the short term, the recovery from COVID and the very uneven and unequal recovery from COVID we're likely to see worldwide is going to be very high on his agenda. Uh, you know, In the immediate moment, he is lobbying a lot of leaders, especially from rich countries, to do more about getting COVID vaccines to, uh, to poor states and conflict-affected states. And I think that he recognizes that to retain credibility with, you know, poorer UN members, um, UN members from the global south, he he does need to sort of push very, very hard on that issue. But even when you get beyond the vaccine question, I think he's going to have to focus a lot on the social and economic consequences of COVID and the sort of the long term effects of this, you know, catastrophe uh in in much of the developing world well what would be well let me ask you just to just to probe that a a bit deeper like what would be within his you know wherewithal 
to do about you know this you know, social inequality resulting from the pandemic? Like, what can the Secretary General individually do to combat that? I think it's worth saying, by the way, that this is something that he has been thinking about mm-hmm. in some depth. And actually, you asked about his successes. I think one area where he performed impressively uh, last year was in sort of outline, sorry, outlining a lot of the challenges that COVID would um, create. And his office published a, a really remarkable series of um papers on things like the impact of COVID on the economy, the impact of COVID on women, uh, the impact of COVID on uh, disadvantaged groups that, you know, really did lay out a lot of the problems that we now see high on the agenda. The reality is, though, is that, you know, he does not control the resources um, and he cannot make laws uh, that bind states to, to deal with these problems. He has to lobby, he has to convene. And I think that ultimately, in the year or two ahead, he is going to sort of have to use his convening power, use his moral weight to try and persuade uh, you know, leaders in the US, leaders in the EU and elsewhere, uh, as well as the leaders of organizations like the World Bank, to put their resources um, behind efforts to manage uh, the fallout of the pandemic. In fact, you know, he he is just back from a trip to Brussels, uh, where he was talking to EU leaders about precisely these issues. And I'll use that as an opportunity to plug your paper uh, in analyzing EU UN relations ahead of that trip to Brussels from uh, Secretary Guterres. So there also seems to be a suite of security challenges and humanitarian crises that will sort of weigh heavily on Guterres in the coming weeks and months, principally the crisis in Tigray, Ethiopia. You know, if present trends continue, uh, we may be seeing just a massive famine killing hundreds of thousands of people in the coming months, which would be an indelible stain on his reputation on his mark as secretary general. How would you assess so far Guterres's ability to insert the UN and himself in preventing this, this crisis from escalating even further? Well, I think this has been a real test of his approach to crisis management, and it has actually spotlighted you know, some of the criticisms that I was referring to earlier about his inherent caution. Because here we have a crisis that uh, Guterres himself has said in a letter to G7 leaders uh, earlier in June, you know, threatens to create a famine equivalent to that which hit Ethiopia in 1984. A, uh, you know, a humanitarian disaster of enormous proportions, resulting from uh, the conflict that has now been running in Tigray for about nine months. Uh, he's been very, very outspoken on the humanitarian dimension of this. Um, he's been pleading with rich states to find money to deal with the famine. And actually, the UN is struggling to find the cash that it needs for a, a basic response in terms of uh, food supplies. But on the other hand, he has been deeply, deeply cautious about talking, frankly, about the war 
that has led to this horrible situation. And he has been talking quietly uh, with the Ethiopian Prime Minister, um, Abiy Ahmed. He has been, uh, you know, he, he's been trying to use back channel means to persuade the Ethiopians to step back from the brink. But he has also worried a lot of Security Council members because he, he hasn't been willing to challenge the Ethiopians more directly in public about their behavior. He doesn't even really want to brief a public meeting of the Security Council on what's going on in Tigray, uh, where the violence is horrible. Because why he's is worried. That? Yeah, why, why, well, why do you think that is? He's, he's worried, I think, that if he does speak out, then uh, the Ethiopians could make it even harder for uh, the World Food Programme and other UN agencies to operate in Tigray. Um, so he's, he's facing you know, a really fundamental dilemma. Does he address the origins of this crisis head on, which is what the US and others would like him to do? Or does he put saving lives through humanitarian means uh, ahead of the um, political situation? And, you know, right now he continues to emphasize quiet diplomacy, but the war is ongoing. The war has actually spiked um, in the last uh, couple of weeks. Um, we've seen a horrible airstrike um, in Tigray claiming a lot of lives. And it's, you know, it's not clear how long Guterres can avoid speaking out a bit more publicly about this, this crisis. Yeah, I mean, at some point, if present trends continue, there will be a very widespread famine resulting in tens or hundreds of thousands of deaths. It seems as if that is where we are headed right now. It does. And the question is, again, do you address the political root causes or, or do you address the humanitarian consequences? And I, I, unfortunately, I think the UN will be damned whatever it does. Um, I should say, you know, Tigray is the most urgent crisis. I think there are some others looming on the horizon for Guterres. I think a big one, and one that could equally spiral really viciously, is in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the reality is that once, you know, US and Western troops are out of Afghanistan, it does look like there could be a severe escalation of conflict again, and it will be the UN uh, that is left sort of trying to manage the fallout from that, both in political terms, because I think, you know, UN mediators are going to stay on in Afghanistan, um, but also in, in humanitarian terms. And so we're talking about Tigray now, but in three or four months time, we're quite likely to be asking, well, you know, what's the UN plan? Maybe it's, it's the also... Taliban it's, takes yeah. Kabul, you know. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's worth also emphasizing that the UN has been a target of the Taliban and of other jihadist groups in Afghanistan. And he'll be presented with a situation in which there is no you know, security guarantee for human UN humanitarian agencies or UN political officers working in, in Afghanistan. Like they may be chased out. They may. I mean, <laughs> You know, there are parallels here with the 1990s when, you know, the UN was sort of left trying to deal with Afghanistan after the Soviet withdrawal um, and prior to 9-11. And I think that was a, a deeply scarring experience for the organization. So, yeah, there are many challenges ahead and we could go on. You know, the UN has to try and work out what to do in Myanmar, especially if, as 
you know, is quite possible. Um, the conflict in Myanmar worsens. And of course, you know, there are recurrent challenges for the UN in Mali, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Guterres will have a lot of security crises to to address. And it will be interesting to see, now that he's secured his second term, whether he will be, become a bit more uh, assertive, if you will, in, in handling those crises than he could be in his first term. So you started off this conversation by noting some areas in which Guterres has not really expended much political capital, uh, but one area in which he has is climate. And we are speaking, you know, several months ahead of a major climate summit in Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, This is supposed to be the follow up to the 2015 Paris Agreement in which countries are supposed to increase their ambitions to put the world on a better track on climate, also to increase funding for the developing world to develop their economies in ways that are more climate friendly. This is like a very big moment in the history of climate diplomacy. How have you perceived uh, Guterres looking forward to that moment and approaching that moment? Like, what what has he been doing behind the scenes to prepare the diplomacy that is necessary to get us on the right track? Well, this is the the multi trillion dollar question because, which is why I'm asking you, Richard. <laughs> no, because look, I mean, right now, as I say, the focus is COVID. By default, the Secretary General has to deal with crises like Tigray and Afghanistan. But I think ultimately it's fairly clear that his legacy will be defined by where we stand on climate change um, in five years' time. Because this second term for Guterres does coincide with what is clearly a rapidly closing window um, to get successful collective action on global warming. And Guterres, when he came into office, didn't really want to focus on climate change. Um, Ban Ki-moon, who you recently interviewed, had worked very hard to get the Paris uh, Agreement ratified. And Guterres felt he should expend his political capital elsewhere. But over time, as it's been clear that the world is slipping on its commitments um, in Paris, he has become more and more seized of, of climate change. And if you go back to 2019, um, uh, he tried to make 2019 a year of climate. He focused uh, that year's session of the, the General Assembly with world leaders absolutely on, on climate risks. And you know, now looking forward, I think he's going to be spending an enormous amount of time, yes, on the run-up to, to Glasgow, but, you know, beyond Glasgow on sort of just trying to pressure countries to fulfill their um, uh, their commitments uh, on global warming. That's one area where he has been um, outspoken. He's, you know, he's talked about the need to stop building coal-fired power stations, but he's also going to have to work really, really hard, uh, as you say, behind the scenes to try and persuade countries to make some hard choices on uh, on climate issues. And, you know, that's one area where having the Biden administration on board does make a big difference because uh, with Trump in the White House, you know, Guterres could could plead, he could cajole, um, but everyone knew that 
you know, the US was disengaged. If Guterres can go to other world leaders and say, you know, I need you to make some real agreements and some real sacrifices, and the US has my back on this, then maybe he can, you know, he can get more concrete results. Uh, Before I let you go, is there anything else that you'll be looking towards that will suggest to you whether or not Guterres will have a successful second term? I I've spent a lot of the last six months, um, you know, as a professional UN watcher, trying to gauge how the Chinese and Russians are responding to the Biden administration uh, at the UN, and you know, I I have seen some signs over issues like Myanmar, but also over issues like COVID and and climate change that the Chinese, at least, you know are willing to make some new compromises with this new US administration, um, that they don't want to be trapped in the sort of toxic relationship that uh, the US and China had by the end of Trump's term. And for me, that's all important, because the extent to which, you know, the two main global powers now are willing to put aside their differences on some topics at the UN is um you know is decisive to what Guterres could do uh i don't think that security council diplomacy is going to get any easier i think that we're going to see regular flare-ups between the big powers at the un but i i I do see some hints that there is still some political space for the us to cooperate at least with the chinese and then to a lesser extent with the russians on global issues here in new york and as Guterres sort of, you know, prepares for his second term agenda, uh, that's what I will really be watching. What's the what's the shifting big power context in which he's operating? As I say, right at the moment, I think there are a f- you know there are a few small signs that political circumstances may may give the SG um, some openings to, you know. Uh, to achieve at least some concrete goals on all the issues we've been talking about. Uh, Well, Richard, thank you as always for your time and for coming on at such short notice to let listeners know this episode came together about 45 minutes ago. So thank you. Uh, A good podcast is like a good omelet. You you need to break eggs and move fast. (laughs) All right. We'll see you next time. We'll talk. We'll talk around Onga. We will. Looking forward to it. All right. Thank you all for listening. Big thank you to Richard. That episode, as I alluded to at the end, came together at the very last moment. I had a guest had to reschedule on me at the last moment and uh, put out a, a call, a plea on Twitter. Richard got back to me. I always love chatting with him. So thank you all. And once again, please do buy our debut book, For the Love of Hong Kong, a memoir from my city under siege by Hannah Mahon Davis. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to find the link to the book. And it's a great book, I must say. You will learn a lot from it. I'm so proud of it. And it can be read in about one or two sittings. It's not that long. All right. Thank you. See you next time. Bye. Thank you.